0: Good morning, Door Creek. It's good to be together with you. If you're a guest here today, my name is Mark, one of the pastors. Welcome. Glad that you are here today. So uh, you're hoping this sermon doesn't get into that Packer game, right? I'm a Bear fan. There's a good chance we'll be able to see that. So it's hard for me to say I'm a Bear fan, but, you know, it's some, th- some things you just can't help. You're born that way. Um, so um, Veterans Day was yesterday. And uh, we really want to honor those of you who have served as veterans in service for our country. We honor you. We love you. And um, we just are glad that there's a day that we can remember that. And so I've got a son in law, John, who's a veteran. He serves as a captain in the Army. Lori's dad was a medic in the Army and walked into Hiroshima after uh, that just awful situation, and so we can only imagine some of the horrors that you've experienced, and um, on our behalf, we are really, really grateful, so I want to say that. (laughs) It was a horrific day in Sutherland Springs a week ago, and uh, the the, the news cycle moves on, doesn't it? And their lives don't. And uh, I want to just together just lift that whole situation up in prayer. Would you join me? Lord God, you are the Father of all mercies, the God of all comfort. Have mercy, bring comfort on all who mourn and grieve. Especially those down in Sutherland Springs, Texas. And those who were reminded again in places like Charleston, South Carolina. Lord, you alone are a refuge and strength in a day of trouble. And for that reason, we will not fear, even though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. So, eternal God, wrap your loving arms around those whose worlds have fallen in around them, those who are mourning those who are reeling, those who need healing, those whose lives are in the balance, those whose lives will never be the same. Lord, we believe that only you can bring good out of this nightmare. And so, would you bring something beautiful out of these ashes? Have mercy on them and on us. And as a psalmist prays we pray bring to an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure Lord God we long for the day when at your return your word tells us that violence ruin and destruction will be no more we long for that day and until that day may we live for you love for you and pin our hopes fully and solely in you, the Prince of Peace. So, Lord, as we come to your word, and we believe it's not an idle word. It is our life. We need your word to guide us and to speak into our hearts. And so there's things that would distract us. There's burdens that would distract us. Lord, by your spirit, would you just take those away? Would you use the message you've placed in my heart to do good in our hearts, that we might not just know your word, but that we would be positioned to do your word for your glory and the good of those you've called us to serve. In Christ's name we pray. God's people said amen. So I want to take you back to uh, the high school lunchroom. You there? Some of you go, what do you mean back? I'm there like right now. So I want you to go back to the high school lunchroom, and I want you to think about whose table you sat at. Who was at your table? I want you to think about the different tables. I want you to think about the tables you didn't want to sit at. I want you to think about the tables you go, man, I was kind of hoping I could sit at that table. You know what I'm talking about? Isn't it amazing that in the cafeteria of a school, you've got of got this matrix of the social hierarchy, the pecking ladder, if you will, right? The social rankings of the student body, right there, right there. So were you one of those jocks? Three-sport letter guy? Great female athlete. Were you one of the cheerleaders? Dance team? call those the beautiful people. We want to be at your table. want to be at your table. You go, no, I wasn't one of those tables. I was kind of like the non-beautiful table. (laughs) Like, I didn't fit there. I didn't fit anywhere. And uh, I was with that group where you didn't have to be anything. You just fit in. And we were messed up. And we were doing drugs. And I was at that table. Some of you curve breakers out there, you were at the Brainiac table. We didn't like you. (laughs) Kept lowering our grades. You did. (laughs) You were so weird. You actually talked about what you got on your ACT and SAT. Like the rest of us, we weren't telling anybody what we got on ours. Perfect score. I remember them telling me, "Perfect score. Are you kidding?" Then, you know, there're the thespians and the arts folks and they, you know, they they actually, did you remember that? They didn't ever go to the lunchroom. Like they they hung out in the hallway by the band. Like they they were like they were their own deal the music people, the, the arts people. And so it's interesting that, you know, we could, we could compete together. We could live on the same street. We could, um, you, you know, we could perform in the same musical. We could actually be family. But it didn't necessarily mean we had a seat at that table. Like there are requirements, right, to get at the table. And for a lot of us, How we felt about ourselves had everything to do which table we were at. So God wants to talk to us about the table. About his table, about our table as a church, and about our own tables. Wants to talk to us about the table. So we're in Galatians. Galatians is this letter that was written to this area of churches, churches like Lystra and Derby, that Paul planted on his way in his first missionary journey, working through Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and he's sending it to a group of churches, and he's concerned about this singular point, and he talks about it in chapter 1. He's concerned that the churches that had a good start as they heard the gospel that Paul preached, are now deserting it. They're deserting this God of grace and the gospel of grace and living their lives in the grace, trusting in grace alone, through faith alone in Christ. And he's concerned that they're deserting the gospel. And so he's writing this letter. And in this letter, he's going to make it really clear that you may be tempted by these false teachers and these false believers that are creeping and infiltrating into the church into thinking that actually there's more than one gospel. He says, actually, that's not true. There is no other gospel. They're telling you it's another gospel, but there is no other gospel. There's only one gospel. And so strong is he about this conviction. He says, look, if I or even an angel came to you and started preaching a different message A good news message of God's love for us in Christ, whereby we are forgiven and restored into this relationship with God by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If anybody else brings you anything that says, that's good, but it ain't enough, a curse be down on their head, on my head, on an angel's head, on anybody, there's one gospel. And then he defends. He defends his message. He defends it on motive. Hey, I'm not trying to please man, I'm not shifting up the message so that I got more friends who are Gentiles. He says, I'm, I'm doing this to please God. This is God's message. He talks about the origin of his message. He says, by the way, these believers are saying, what does this guy Paul know? Like, who's Paul? Like, he didn't come from headquarters. I didn't hear he come from Jerusalem. Who's this guy anyways? Paul says, well, just so you know, the message that I shared with you, Galatians, I didn't get it from any guy. I didn't go to any class. I wasn't taught it by any man. I got it direct from Christ by a revelation. The resurrected Christ met me. It's supernatural, it's beyond description, but he spoke to me and he gave me the truth about the good news, this gospel of grace. He says, And when I received it, I didn't even consult with any other human being, not the apostles. In fact, he says, I didn't go down to Jerusalem until three years later. And it was just kind of like to have coffee. We didn't even bring it up. I met the guys. Then says in chapter 2, where we're going to pick it up today, but there actually was a time that I went to Jerusalem. So he's going to tell us about what happened 14 years later. Grab your Bible. Galatians chapter 2. Paul's concern is that the Galatian church, the believers, are going to desert the gospel by adding something to it. That they're being duped into thinking that Jesus is great, but he's not enough. You need Jesus plus. Now let me say, we're reading a document that goes back 2,000 years. This is early first century. Somewhere right around like 50 A.D., one of the first letters written in the New Testament. This is early history, but this is like so contemporary in its thrust and impact because there's a lot of Jesus plus going on today, and we need to understand Jesus plus is a primary way that we desert the gospel. So he talks about, hey, you know what? I got it from Christ. I didn't even think about having it checked out by the apostles. Yeah, I did go three years later. Oh, but by the way, then 14 years later, I did go down. Not because I was called into headquarters. Here's what he says, verse 1 of chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation... In other words, he didn't get the memo from James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, signed by Peter and John that said, Paul, we need to talk. You need to get up here quick because we've got concerns about the message you're preaching to the Gentiles. He said, that never happened. It was God who spoke to me again in a revelation. He goes on. And meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. And when we read that the first time, we go, well, it sounds like he's concerned about maybe he's got the wrong message. He says, and since I wasn't thinking about going down there, but God made it clear I should go down there, I, I presented the gospel because I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. And we go, well, maybe Paul's having second doubts. Maybe he's entertained the thoughts of these false teachers and believers who are saying Jesus is great, but he's just not great enough. You need more. You need to go back and keep the Old Testament law. This would be true for any Jew that's following Jesus, and especially true for a Gentile. They gotta be a Jew before they can be a Christ follower. And maybe Paul's having second thoughts that maybe, maybe I had messed up. No, it's not. It can't be. It can't be that. He's been preaching this message for 14 years. He said, I wasn't even thinking of going down and getting a check until God said, you need to go down to Jerusalem and meet with the leaders of the church there. What was at stake here was not his message, but his mission. What he's concerned about is his running in vain would be that he's preaching God's grace, the gospel of grace, in Christ alone, through faith alone, and that those who believed in Christ alone were now thinking Christ isn't enough, and they want to add something to Jesus, and that would be throwing Jesus out. Because there's a, there's a mathematical equation that was clearly in Paul's mind. It's reflected in his teaching, and we need to see it. So let me just put it up on the screen, this equation that I want you to think of and see when it comes to the book of Galatians. Say it with me. Jesus plus anything is zero, is nothing. Say it again. Jesus plus anything is nothing. It's nothing. And that would be running in vain. If these guys actually threw out Jesus when they thought, well, Maybe I, Jesus is good, but just maybe a little extra law-keeping here just in case I covered both bases, a little of my good works, a little of Jesus' goods works. and Man, that's like a really good portfolio for my eternal future. I'd be running in vain, he said. I'd be running in vain. So he goes on, yet not even Titus, verse 3, who was with me was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. So he's saying, look, I took Titus, and I took Barnabas, and by the way, Titus is a Greek guy, he's not circumcised, and we went down there, we were talking about my gospel, we were talking about my mission to the Gentiles, and Titus didn't walk out of Jerusalem circumcised. He didn't go, oh man, I missed that point. I'm supposed to get circumcised. I need to follow the Jewish customs and the law in order to be a Christ follower. No, he he left as he came, an uncircumcised Gentile. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Oh, I love his love. For his Gentile brothers and sisters. So he says, here's the reason this is an issue. Because some people, these false teachers and believers, have slipped in. They've infiltrated our ranks. And they're duping these Gentiles into thinking Jesus and faith in him is not enough, but they actually need to be circumcised and keep the law. So there's this really interesting story out of World War II where the Germans infiltrated the uh, the American military. So this this is uh, Europe. This is right before the Battle of the Bulge. And uh, there was a special brigade within the German army that was made up of these soldiers that spoke really good English. And as they captured American soldiers, they would put them, obviously, in American uniforms. And as they got a hold of Jeeps, they had them riding Jeeps. And they looked just like the real thing. And they sounded like the real thing. The uniforms, the Jeeps, they got the MP badges on them. And they're directing traffic in the wrong way. The Battle of Bulges is this way. And they're saying to the convoys, this way, guys, this way, guys, this way, guys. They infiltrated the ranks. And Paul's saying, these false believers have come. They're going, uh, this way, guys. You've got to pick up Judaism. You've got to pick up a life of doing good works, a life of fulfilling the law that begins for the man with circumcision. Now, they weren't just leading him astray there in Galatia. He says they were leading him into an ambush to capture them, to take them captive, to enslave them. So the paradigm is the gospel of grace frees us. It frees us from the penalty of the law, which is death, death, it frees us from the guilt of, 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 of the law, not being able to keep it. It frees our conscience. It frees our life to live for God in a way that we never can if how we live with God is by perfectly keeping the law. It frees us, but he says it's Jesus plus stuff that's just as current today. That actually enslaves us. How? well, man, now our focus isn't on a relationship. It's on all these external uh, religious things that we need to do and things that we should not do. So all the particulars of the law, some of us grew up in constructs like that. Protestant, Catholic, you name it. All kinds of religion. In fact, the grace of the gospel is the singularly unique thing of all other religious constructs that it's a free gift, that it's not anything we do or deserve. Everything else is some kind of effort that we bring into the picture that makes us right with God, that secures our eternal life with God. And so it enslaves us by we're, we're in all these rules and regulations. And what's worse is there's like these, there's these leaders that know the rules, and they're like refereeing our lives. And they're telling us, when well, we messed it up. And, and that's really boggling because we know they mess it up too. And so that's messing with us and that's enslaving us. And, and then there's just, there's the burden of all the different things that I got to keep track of. And then there's this growing guilt, like I'm not doing really good at this. And then there's this growing anxiety, like, ah, what if, what if God doesn't create on a curve? What if, like, what if it's not good enough? It's enslaving us to the penalty of a life separated from God. The gospel of grace frees the Jesus plus the gospel that is no gospel enslaves. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about. So he goes on, and he gets to this whole matter of bringing his gospel message before the people, the leaders, the esteemed pillars. Verse 6, as for those who are held in high esteem, Whatever they were makes no difference to me. In other words, he's saying, look, they may be leaders of the church, but at the end of the day, I care what God thinks about my message. Is what he's saying. God doesn't show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. So just look at that. So I went down. After 14 years, I laid it out. Here's my mission to the Gentiles. Here's what I'm proclaiming to the message, the hope of the gospel, all about the grace of Christ and trusting in Christ alone, his good work on the cross on our behalf, and that's it. And they didn't say, "Ah, Paul, like you're missing, you're forgetting. Like, what about the law? They didn't add anything. They didn't add anything. It's faith in Christ alone. Faith in Christ alone that makes us right. Right. So he goes on, verse 7. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, to Gentiles, just as Peter, the apostle Peter, had been to the circumcised, to Jews. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. Same God, same mission, two guys to do different groups of people, but the same gospel. Verse 9 James, this is Jesus' brother, the head of the church in Jerusalem, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars in the church, right, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, and all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. So, I shared it. I wasn't, there was nothing missing. They gave me the right hand of fellowship. Like, we're on the same team. We're brothers in Christ. You go, you go chase down the Gentiles with the grace of God. We're going to go chase down with Peter, the Jews, for, with the grace of God. It's all good. There's just one thing left, and you're going, oh, okay, what's this little point of theology going to be? It's like, wow, verse 10. We're always looking for surprises. I wasn't expecting verse 10. I, was kinda, I thought he was going to like get to this, like this kernel thing of theology that he was going to get. You don't forget that. And he says what? Remember the poor. So what does it look like for Christ's followers to remember the poor? What did it look like for us this past week to remember the poor? One of the reasons we're just continually pushing and driving to be relationally connected in our own community with people that are vulnerable is Because this is on God's heart. This is on God's heart. The poor is on God's heart. In fact, when you read the law, which is a clear reflection of God's heart, what you see is God doesn't give the poor equal standing. He gives the poor, the widows, the orphans, the the alien, the refugee, He gives them preferential treatment, not equal treatment. There's like special worlds. So right now, like they're cleaning up all the fields, right? You notice how they clean up the fields here? Man, they get everything. All the way to the edges. They're not missing any of the beans. They're not missing any of the corn. They're getting all of it. That that not God's law. God's law said you couldn't get the edges. You got to leave the edges. Leave it for the poor. Preferential treatment and how they did life, and how they did harvest, and how they did worship and sacrifice, and how they did lending, and how they repaid people, and how they gave back property. It was all over there. The poor is on God's heart. He gives them preferential treatment. When Jesus is asked by John the Baptist's disciples, hey, John, uh, Jesus, we're here for John. John's he's, he's almost there, but he's not sure. Are you really the guy? Like, are you really the promised Messiah? He thinks, I mean, he's almost there. But just, what can you tell us that we can tell him so we can close this kind of gap here. He said, well, here's what you got to tell John. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are healed, the dead are raised, and I preach the good news to the poor. To the poor. That's what Jesus said. To the poor. Giving to the poor is a grace move. Grace is a free gift. There's nothing we have done. We can't earn God's Forgiveness and his favor and his goodness. Giving to the poor is a grace move because the poor can't give back. It's a grace move. It's on God's heart, it's to be on the church's heart, it's to be on the leader's heart. The Jerusalem Christians actually were poorer than the Gentile church. Remember your brothers and sisters. Remember the poor. Paul says, I'm glad to do that. I'm glad to do that. We read later in Acts 24, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. That's what the church did so beautifully, caring for those within their own family who are of great need. So Paul starts by saying, the first way we can desert the gospel is by adding to it, by thinking that Jesus isn't enough. That's what's going on here. But then in verses 11 and following, he says there's another way. And this way is not about addition. This way is about subtraction. There's another way we desert the gospel, and that is we actually know the gospel. We have great theology. We can articulate it clearly that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. We're resting in His good work, the one who lived a perfect life, always loving the Father and always loving His neighbor. We're resting in that. We can articulate it, and we can be good Lutherans who are celebrating 500 years of Reformation this year and go, I know it, I know it, I know it. And he says, that's not enough. We've got to live in line with the gospel. And so if we're not living in line with the truth of the gospel, we are actually deserting the gospel. So we desert the gospel by adding to it. We desert the gospel by not living our lives in line with it. And this is what he's going to do. And we're going to move from this really nice kind of gathering in Jerusalem where the esteemed leaders of the church are meeting with Paul and Barnabas and Titus, and they're having meals together and fellowship together, talking about the mission together. And it's all good, and it's all warm, and it's all fuzzy, too. we move from Jerusalem to Antioch, and it's as if... Paul, like, smacks Peter right in the face. and says, wake up, buddy. What in the world are you doing? He's going to catch up with it. Here we go. Verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Oh, we're back in the lunchroom. We're back in the lunchroom with the church in Antioch where the believers were first called Christians, this very multi-ethnic church that you can read about in Acts chapter 13. Before certain men came from James, so James, Jesus' brother, the leader of Jerusalem, in other words, these guys came from headquarters. Before they came, he used to eat with the Gentiles. They're in the lunchroom, in the church cafeteria, right? They had fellowship together. But when they arrived, these guys from headquarters, right, He began to draw back. Who did? Peter did. He drew back, and he separated himself from the Gentiles. Why? Because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. That's the label Paul gives of these false believers and teachers who are saying, you need Jesus plus the law. You need Jesus plus circumcision, which was the sign of the covenant that God sealed with his people back in the Old Testament. He was afraid of his own tribe. They weren't believers. They had the false gospel, but they were Jews. They were his people. That was the kind of people that were at his table, the cultural Jews, and he was afraid of what they were going to say, so he's slipping back. He's stepping aside. He's no longer sharing his Fritos, right, like I used to do with my buddies at the lunch table. He's not doing that anymore with the Gentiles because he's afraid. Verse 13, look what happens. The leader draws back notice. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Like, this is the great guy, the son of encouragement, who took Paul under his wings to say to the, to the leaders in the church, he's a good guy. You can trust him. I know you've, you've been freaked out by this guy and, and wishing that he'd never show up in your synagogue, but he's been really converted. Even that guy was led astray. And when I saw that they were not acting, here it is, in line with the truth of the gospel. See, it's a gospel issue what's going on here. Oh, you could say, well, pff, it's a pretty big integrity issue, right? We It's a pretty big relational issue going on in the church. For Paul... This whole matter of how he was dealing with people of other ethnicities and race was a gospel issue. And he wasn't going to get sidetracked and give him a courageous pep talk. You've got to be stronger. You've got to be stronger when these people come. He didn't chide him for his lack of character and integrity. He went right to the gospel. This was a gospel issue. And it had huge stakes for these Gentiles and their future standing with God. Because if they buy the lie... Paul knows Jesus plus circumcision is what? Nothing. Jesus plus doing your good works is nothing. And their life with God would be jeopardized. And their life within the people of God would be segregated. So there would be going forward from this day, there would be this Jewish church of Christ followers, and there would be this Gentile. The stakes were huge. So he says, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's his, his name is Peter, to most of us, in front of them all, Pete, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile. Peter you no longer keep the law. Remember you had the vision, the sheet came down, God said, rise, kill, and eat. You said, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, because that's all the stuff I've never eaten in my life. I can't eat it. The ceremonial law says, you cannot eat this unclean meat. And God says, these things are no longer in play because of Christ. And just as you can eat this meat, you can have fellowship with Cornelius, who you're going to meet and who's going to receive the Spirit, and he is going to be your brother in faith. This is Peter. and He says, Peter, you've been living like a Gentile. In other words, you're not keeping closely the law. You live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? And we go, well, how did he force them? There's nothing in the text that Peter swapped the gospel message and he went to a Jesus Plus. He forced them into concluding that the Gentile needed to become a Jew because he no longer fellowshipped, that they no, no longer had unity in the gospel that their unity would now have these cultural accoutrements to it so that they had to be Jewish and keeping the customs of the religious laws of Judaism, that he would force them into it. He says, verse 15, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, he knows he's sinful too, he's just making the polar opposites here, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. Supposedly, we've always thought that we're better than the Goyim, the Gentiles, those dogs, those barbarians that do all kinds of crazy sacrificing to all their gods. But we know that we can't be justified by keeping the law, by by works of the law, but we're justified, we're made right, we're declared righteous, we're no longer condemned by God through faith, by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith, the Jews have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So there's a smackdown in the lunchroom in front of everybody because Peter had done it in front of everybody. And Paul is passionate. He's passionate about God's mission for all people. He's passionate to defend the one true gospel, which is the good news of God's love for us in Christ that becomes ours through faith alone. We're justified by faith, not good works. He's passionate about that, and so he 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 has a knockdown dragout right there in public. And if we were there, we'd have all said, that was uncomfortable. <laughs> whoa, whoa. So he goes on, and if you're reading in your NIV, um, a lot of Paul when we're reading through the Bible. It's not story. It's, it's not narrative. It's, it's this, this deep, reasoned argument. And like he's, if you thought you were good at run on sentences, this guy is the best. <laughs> Man, he's got sentences that can go and go and go. And it's just hard to kind of, so as I was reading through this, I thought, you know, the NLT, which is like a paraphrase, New Living Translation, I think will give you a better understanding of this next part. So I'm going to have it up on the screen. And what I think Paul's doing, because he's writing this letter to churches, and who's, in, who's at church when, when he's reading this? The Gentile believers who started well. Who else is in church? What do we know? Who else is in church? The infiltrators. The guys that are dressed up as Americans, but they're Germans. The guys that are of the circumcision group, but they're pretending like they're, they're of the Jesus group. They're in the church too, and he's anticipating them saying something fundamental like this. Well, if it's just Christ alone and faith alone in Christ and his good work on the cross, and we don't have to do anything with the law, we don't have to keep the law, well, then isn't trusting in Jesus and following Jesus actually, actually taking people down a pathway where they're actually sinning? That's exactly where he's going. So look at it up on the screen. But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ. And then we're found guilty because we've abandoned the law. That's what the people would say, the false teachers. Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Rather, I'm a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law and keeping the law, that system I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. So he said, that's just fallacious thinking. Actually, grace never leads us into sin. Grace is never a license for sin. Grace frees us from sin and the power of sin and the desire to go down because we've, we've experienced life and grace and all of good, God's good things. We don't want to go down there. He says, that's absolutely not the case. Actually, what is the case is we'd be sinning if we did the Jesus plus. So why is the Jesus plus thing wrong? Why is that sinning? Because Paul was crystal clear because he got it from Christ. And Jesus said to his disciples, and maybe he said it to, to Paul, Paul, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He says there's one bridge to God, and it's Christ, through faith in Christ. And if you got people that say, no, actually, that is the first bridge, but you didn't know it. There's two bridges. you got to take the first bridge. Then when you get over the first bridge, look for that second bridge. It's called good works. You go down that good works thing, then you actually get there. He says, no, there's only one bridge. And that bridge of good works is not leading to paradise. It's leading to a world separated from God because at that bridge, that second bridge, your faith has now moved from Christ alone to Jesus plus me, that you have become your functional Savior. That's why it's sin. I love what Keller says. Christ will do everything for you or nothing. Christ will do everything for you if your trust is in Him alone alone. He will do nothing for you. If he's just like, hey, I'm just like a little bit of Jesus right here, a little bit of my own good work stuff right here. I'll take a little bit of this Eastern philosophy because that's kind of cool too. And I'll take a little of this back here from my past and I'm going to put it all together. That's like, that's a really good spiritual portfolio. Like that's covering all the bases that I know. And Paul says, once you added anything to Jesus, you got nothing. You've got nothing. So let's talk about three tables. The first is God's table. Are you crystal clear today on how it is that one is invited to the table? Are you are you crystal clear? Galatians 2 is saying race, that doesn't get you to the table. Culture, that doesn't get you to the table. Let me add to that your social economic status, that, that doesn't get you to the table. Your success, your, your educational degrees, that, that doesn't get you to the table. Your wealth, that doesn't get you to the table, it's not your manners. You know, I grew up with three sisters. You know what that means? I had four mothers. (laughs) And every time I went to the dinner table, I was being instructed on, you know, table manners. It was so painful, so painful. And I think, actually, there's a bunch of us that think the, the way to get to God's table is to be a well-mannered person, to be a good person. And we go, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be a good person. I'm not perfect, but I'm trying to be a good person. <laughs> that, that actually bars us from the table. Because the posture of a good person is, I deserve a seat at the table. And the whole nature of grace is as a free gift that isn't conditioned on we've done the work. Grace is unmerited favor. We didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it. The the storyline of the Bible was we didn't even want the table. We pushed away from the table in Genesis 3 and said, "Nuts to you, God. We're going to set our own table, and we're going to pick our own friends, and I'm going to be God of my life. Do you know, are you clear, that the invitation to be at God's table is open to everyone, but it's only by His grace? Then there's a second table question. Are you clear about who actually will be at God's table? Starting now in, in heaven, the, the gathered people are gathering and one day will be complete when Christ comes back. Are, are you clear? So we're going we're gonna to sit at the table like in 10 days, Thanksgiving. Are you kidding me? Henry's coming for Christmas for Thanksgiving. I can't wait, our little grandson. We're so obnoxious, Lori and I, about grandparenting. <laughs> unapologetically. I I saw Laura and John and Henry and Bridget and Claire and Peter and Luke around the table in the cabin in Dork County. I can see it. Can we see who's around God's table? Did you know there's a picture? There's 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 a picture in the Bible. You can read it and you can see it. It says in Revelation chapter 5, again in Revelation chapter 7, the picture is people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. Amen? Amen. So that's our hope, you guys, at Door Creek. By God's grace, our desire is to be a Christ-centered church for all people where the power of the gospel is continually transforming lives of people of various political persuasions and economic statures and places in society and marital statuses and all the different ways that we can slice and dice people, united, the races, the nations, united by the gospel. And so then we ask, do we want that? Do we want that kind of a table, Door Creek? So then do you think it's fair to say that maybe our corporate table won't be much better than the the coming together of our individual tables? Is that is that fair? And we go, man, yeah, we want it. Well, do do we want it at our table? Do we want it within our family? Do, do, do we see the profound power of the gospel to unify things that, that just in, in, in the minds of so many of people living today are disparate and don't belong together? I mean, are, are, are there people that if you knew how they voted, if, if you knew different things about them, would, would you really want them at your table? Do we, do we really believe the gospel's greater than that? Oh, that we would have tables that reflect the grace of God. Having been invited to his table, may we spread a table at this church, in, in our apartments, in our condos, in our homes, in our dorm, dorms. May, may we have tables that reflect his beautiful grace till he comes, till he calls us home. Amen? God, help us. Help us to throw out anything, anything, Lord, that we've added to you. Help us to be sober and clear about it. Spirit, just as, as Paul just confronted Peter sternly, but in love, would you show us Would you show us even what what Peter had, this great apostle, this these racist attitudes, Lord, would you show us that? And would you, by your grace for your glory, bless this church to be a Christ centered church for all people? And open our tables and our hearts and our lives and our relationships to people that aren't at our table. Open them wide, Lord, for your glory. Mm -hmm. In Christ's name, amen.